FX medicine is evolving. The same evidence-based research, ideas and thought-provoking conversations that you love in refreshed new formats. To help co-create it with us and for member rewards, sign up at fxmedicine.com.au. For now, enjoy this podcast previously recorded with Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today, all the way from the UK, is Martin Powell, who's a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine, a biochemist, and the author of Medicinal Mushrooms, The Essential Guide, and Medicinal Mushrooms, A Clinical Guide. He was a lecturer at the University of Westminster for 13 years, during which time he helped set up the Master of Science program in Chinese herbal medicine and has also taught in Europe, Africa, and Asia. Today, as well as helping patients writing and lecturing, he works as a consultant to leading companies in the natural products industry, with growers and manufacturers, to improve the quality of raw materials in the supply chain, and with leading integrative health clinics on improved treatments for cancer and other chronic health conditions. I warmly welcome you to FX Medicine. How are you, Martin? Hi there, Andrew. Yes, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, all uh, all, uh, all well, a little bit uh, cold yeah. over here, but uh, we're, we're, we're coping. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, you've got a Bachelor of Science with honours in biochem, so it's a, it's a bit of a jump from biochemistry to mycology. Tell us a little bit about your history and what first got you interested in mycology and medicinal mushrooms. Well, mushrooms have been something which is really... It sorts me out, if you like, in my life. I certainly didn't wake up one morning and decide that this was what I wanted to specialize in or focus in. Almost quite the opposite, because like a lot of people growing up in the UK and um, in you know, other you know, English-speaking countries, we tend to have a, an innate you know, mycophobia. We have an innate mm. wariness of mushrooms. And certainly when I was growing up and I went for a walk with my parents in the forest, you know, they would always say, don't touch the mushrooms. Oh, really? Because, yeah, because we didn't really think about them as something which could be uh, beneficial. Um, we, we were much more aware and conscious of the potential toxic nature of some of the species. So growing up, I think a lot of people, myself and a lot of people here, have an innate wariness, if you like, of mushrooms. So it was actually quite a surprise and revelation for me when I start, started studying Chinese medicine. And of course, in Chinese medicine, mushrooms have been a major component mm. of the Materia Medica mm. for as long as it's been you know, developing, you know, well over 2,000 years. Yeah. And if you, look at, if you look at the earliest extant Materia Medica, Shennong Ben Sao Jing, that already lists a number of mushroom species and lists most of them in the superior category of herbs. So rather than being toxic, it's those herbs which can safely be consumed for long periods of time. And of which it is said that long-term use will lighten the body and confer longevity. 
So it's a radically different approach or radically different attitude, if you like, to that which I grew up with. Yeah. Um, that's what really got, got me started, made, made me interested. Yeah, it's, it's a different, there were certainly, there were, you know, within particularly the, in more rural areas, particularly in the farming community, there was an awareness. And you talk to people, you know, of your you know, our parents' generation. Mm. And, you know, those who grew up on farms you know, did, you know, in many cases, have an awareness of uh, which mushrooms were good to eat and which weren't. But if you look at the majority of the population, certainly those in the towns and the cities, there wasn't that same level of awareness. Because, right. you know, these are you know, quite strange and um, potentially toxic. So, yes, the contrast with the Chinese approach that actually these aren't just only not toxic in many cases, they're incredibly beneficial for our health and well-being. What about the, the history of medicinal fungi? You know, we, we know traditional Chinese medicine has, has used them as medicines. Um, other cultures use them in more religious or enlightening type uh, rituals. What about historically, you know, the, the European medicinal um, array? There, there was, there was a, um, and going back to the Romans, you know, Galen, in uh, his uh, work, he did talk about mushrooms and he included mushrooms as uh, with having therapeutic potential at that time. Mm. But that knowledge was largely, uh, was, wasn't pursued and you know, was, wow. I think, forgotten by the Middle Ages. You know, there, were, there was really no extant tradition uh, of medicinal usage here in, in Europe and the UK. So, Yes, it was something which really we, we, we lost uh, touch with. And even going back to the Romans, it was very minor. It wasn't a major, they weren't seen as a major category right. of medicinal plants you know, or herbs in their own right. And what about the, the species that we're, you know, we're very um, au fait with, with from the traditional Chinese medicine arsenal? You know, trimetes, gryphola, that sort of thing. Do these occur naturally? in the West and in the Americas, or are, are they more introduced and they had, uh, you know, intrinsic different species? No, many of these are indeed um, endemic, or they are native species also in the Americas and in uh, Europe. So, you know, one of the most fascinating examples of that is reishi. Right. And, of course, when we think about mass medicinal mushrooms, the quintessential oriental mushroom, if you like, is reishi. Mm, mm. But actually, the type specimen for reishi was collected in London. Oh, okay. So the, the, right. the species for that was described in the, in the Materia Medicus and in uh, you know, all publications really on reishi pretty much is Ganoderma lucidum. And the type specimen for Ganoderma lucidum was collected in London in about 1760. Oh, my goodness. So, Ganoderma lucidum is a native British mushroom. So, sometimes when I go to China and uh, talk to people over there, I like to tell them that, well, of course, you know that reishi is a, a British mushroom. <laughs> oh, and I can just see the applause, the, the jaws falling aghast. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the initial reaction is, no, surely not. You know, it can't be. But uh, when one explains to them, of course... You know, the, 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 following on from that, there is because because Ganoderma lucidum is a British species. 
it, what follows from that is actually what is cultivated, what grows naturally in China and Japan um, is not necessarily Ganoderma lucidum. Right. Although when you read the Materia Medica, the species is described as Ganoderma lucidum, it, there are various other Ganoderma species which are now uh, recognized as the ones which grow in China. So actually, you know, what it means is the majority of the textbooks are wrong. <laughs> so uh, they need to be updated um, in that regard. There's another question there, and that is, does that mean we've always been using the wrong mushroom? Not the wrong mushroom, though, no, because there is a lot of overlap between uh, different species, particularly closely related species. So it's no accident that the Chinese mushroom lingzhi uh, or reishi, to give it its uh, Japanese name, is was identified as Ganoderma lucidum because they look very, very similar. And indeed, when you look at the active components of Ganoderma lucidum or the British uh, species and compare it with the Chinese, Japanese species, they're very similar. Ah, okay. So from a health benefit, therapeutic potential, there's really you know, nothing to choose between them. It's purely based on the taxonomy. Right, gotcha. Of the species. So no, we haven't been... Yeah, we've been calling it the wrong thing. Right. Yes. Right. And if you look on any any bottle of reishi in a super in a store uh, or online, it's going to say Ganoderma lucidum yeah. species, because that's what everybody associates with reishi and with that particular mushroom. But you know, strictly speaking, from a taxonomical point of view, that's not accurate. And taxonomy with mushrooms is fraught with. with like conundrums. Uh, even mycologists have yeah. issues with identification. Oh, it, it's a huge minefield. And becoming, e becoming even more so mm. in recent years with uh, the introduction of DNA testing or DNA sequencing. So that has really led to a, and is, is, has led to a, an ongoing uh, reevaluation of the correct taxonomical position of different species and classification. So it's very much a, a subject for you know, ongoing debate and research. It's led to a lot of changes in the, you know, in the correct uh, identification of particular species yeah. based and on DNA sequencing. So it's really, it hasn't helped things in that sense. It's you know, made things an awful lot more complicated. Are all of the medicinal mushrooms also of a culinary origin or are some of them purely medicines and have always been that? You know, the term medicinal mushroom is a little bit uh, problematic, if you like, in some ways, because to some degree or another, all mushrooms are medicinal. Right, good. And that's, yeah. beca that's, that's because, you know, all mushrooms share a common cell wall structure. So unlike animal cells, mushroom cells in common with plant cells have a rigid cell wall. So that cell wall is predominantly composed of polysaccharides, which are mostly beta-glucans, uh, so beta-linked chains of glucose residues, well, glucose together with other sugars, so really they're hetero-beta-glucans. And the, almost all of them also have some bound protein components. So you come across various terms, you know, including beta-glucan or to give it its their full name, 1316 beta-glucans, or 
to include the fact that the majority of them have a protein component, proteoglycans, or bound protein polysaccharides. So there's a variety of different terms which are used to describe these cell wall components from all mushrooms. And the fact that it's not one species or another species or limited to a few species is shown by the fact that extracts from over 650 different species mm. have all been shown to have immunological activity. So even the common button mushroom that you, or, or portobello or um, yep. chestnut mushrooms that you will buy in you know, every, every supermarket, you know, those also have been shown to be immunologically active. So it's not to say these are not medicinal, they are medicinal. Yeah. But it's just that certain mushrooms have a higher level of immunological activity and certain mushrooms have been subject to wider research and scientific uh, to clinical testing. And certain mushrooms, as well as having these type of polysaccharide-based compounds in their cellular structure, also have evolved to produce a wide variety of secondary metabolites, which then gives them additional properties as well as the immune modulating action, which is common to all mushroom species. So going back to your question, you asked about, you know, whether about medicinal mushrooms and whether they were all edible. So, you know, I, apologies for the slight digression there, but uh, if we look at the species which are typical or traditionally referred to as medicinal mushroom species, then most of them are also culinary mushroom species. So species such as oyster mushroom, maitake, shiitake, oil of, all of these are culinary uh, species. But then there are other mushrooms such as reishi or chaga, or which right. are not, yes. which are not uh, traditionally uh, culinary mushrooms. So it, it varies depending on the, you know, the, the edibility, of course, of the mushroom. I, I guess... You know, what you were talking about before opens up this question of active constituents. Um, I've seen even in one species, Trimetes versicola, when you're talking about the two very well-known patented products on the market, and, and I'm always mindful of when somebody patents something, it's because they want to make money of it. It doesn't necessarily mean that the original everyday thing doesn't have activity. It's just somebody's gone, we can do research on this if it's ours. But how far down a rabbit hole do we have to go to look at quote-unquote active constituents? When I was referring to active constituents earlier, I was actually referring more to the um, secondary metabolites, which are produced by the mushrooms for largely for their antimicrobial properties. Right. And obviously, we'll, we'll probably move on to discuss some of those uh, later. But in terms of the compounds that you mentioned, which are basically extracts of Trimetes versicolor, then neither of them is a single molecule. You know, they're just extracts, yeah. but they're highly purified extracts. Right. So they're extracts where they start off by making a hot water extraction. And hot water extraction is the best way to extract the soluble polysaccharides. So the beta-glucans, proteoglycans, um, which form part of the cellular structure of these uh, of all mushrooms, and including these species. So if you start off by making a hot water extract, you basically boil the mushroom, and then you use you then uh, dry the, uh, you concentrate the uh, polysaccharides out of the water, 
that is made through that boiling. Right. And then you use different uh, uh, purification techniques to get rid of certain fractions there. You get rid of protein components. You get rid of small molecules. And then you can narrow down, if you like, the spectrum of molecules that you have got. And that gives you uh, these particular uh, patented or licensed pharmaceutical products. And as you quite rightly said, I mean, the whole point of doing that is that you can then commercialize the product. So it's but it's only a portion of the overall activity of yeah. the mushroom. Yeah. And every mushroom extract, if you if you were to just you know, boil, do, make a tea of trametes, you know, as has been done traditionally in different countries, that tea will comp- will contain those components. Yes, it's not a magical thing. They've created something new. What they've done is they've taken a tea, and they've then narrowed down the spectrum of molecules which they have uh, then selected to use in clinical studies and then on the basis of those clinical studies to license and commercially um, profit from. The, of course, you know, when you're going to, if you're going to create, um, turn a tea, you know, for, for in terms of the commercial process, the, the first stage, because if you want something that's in a dried form, you can put into a tablet, you can put into a capsule, then the first thing to do is, you know, you've got a liquid, you've got a tea, if you like. You need, you want to, you can either then you know, dry the whole thing, or you can you know, precipitate out a portion of those molecules. And the first stage is normally done is it's normally done through alcohol precipitation, actually, right? Because the alcohol precipitates the polysaccharides out of solution, and then you end up with a you know, kind of a sludge. Yeah. <laughs> And then, then you uh, filter that out, and then you then you you dry it, and then you have a crude uh, polysaccharide extract, and then you can further you know, further purify that by dissolving it up in different solvents and precipitating again. Right. Uh, but the basic stage will give you a you know a crude. Uh, polysaccharide extract. So is it something that we should be really treating each mushroom as to their constituents? For instance, you know, the you know, reishi is far more woody than other mushrooms. So it, it, it needs different solvents to extract, you know, the terpenes and things like that. Whereas trametes is a, this gorgeous velvety, um, it's a beautiful mushroom. And so it, it requires different care to extract its its medicinal value? Yes, and it, it depends on the other secondary metabolites. If, so going back to the active compounds from mushrooms, the first category that all mushrooms contain are these polysaccharides, yeah. the proteoglycans. And the best way to get those, if you want to extract those rather than just getting them through eating the mushroom and extracting them, if you like, in your gut, if you want to extract them to then use in a product, then the best way to do that is through hot water extraction. Gotcha. But those are only you know half of the uh, half of the story as far as mushrooms. Many of the most widely revered and most active medicinal mushroom species are widely revered and have the wide range of physiological properties that they do because it's not just the polysaccharides that they contain but also the other secondary metabolites that they produce. 
which are physiologically active. So you mentioned reishi. So reishi, yes, it does have very active polysaccharides, which you know have high binding specificity to receptors in the surface of immune cells, also which have prebiotic effects on the gut mm. in the flora. Yes. So you know reishi does have those compounds. It does have those polysaccharides, but at the same time. It also produces over 130 different triterpenoid compounds, which largely fall into two families, the ganoderic acids and the leucidenic acids. And the, it's the compounds in these categories, the triterpenoid compounds, which give it its wide range of therapeutic properties, including anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, sedative properties, antihypertensive, anti-allergic, antihistamine uh, properties. All of these are properties of the triterpenoid compounds or components from the mushroom. And because they're terpenes, they're, they're oily compounds. And so they're much more, uh, much more uh, better extracted using organic solvents such as alcohol. So a hot water extract will extract terpenes to some extent, but in a relatively low concentration. Right, Whereas if you want a higher concentration of those compounds, you want to use uh, an alcohol extraction. And sometimes if you want high levels of polysaccharides and high levels of terpenoids, then you need a dual extraction. And do ancient texts teach us this differentiation between the, the different mushrooms? The Chinese texts are pretty much are focused on hot water extraction. Right, gotcha. So they, they weren't using... Well, no, that's not, not entirely true. There is a very uh, active uh, category traditionally in Chinese medicine, which is medicinal wines. Right, yeah. So if you go into a Chinese herb shop in, um, in China, even you know, these days, you'll often see a jar or series of jars on a shelf um, on the wall... And they'll have a whole range of different herbs in them, which are being extracted or slowly extracted over a period of often three months or so um, in, a, in, a, in a wine, gotcha. um, in a, a form of spirit. So, yes, they were using a form of alcohol extraction at that time. But in terms of an individual patient being given a prescription by their practitioner and taking it home, then they would typically do it, uh, use a hot water yeah. extraction. They would boil it and make a decoction. Gotcha. Um, so in herbal medicine, the part of the plant is critical to its use and its action. What about mushrooms? What about the mycelia versus the, the cap? Um, well, all, well, again, when we consider the relative part of the mushroom, we also have to uh, consider it in the context of the active components. So if we, look about, if we think about the polysaccharides again, then they're present in every part of the mushroom because they're structural components of the cell wall. So you've got the same cell wall structure in the fruiting body or in the mycelium. You know, it, it doesn't make any difference. And if you look at the, uh, the licensed pharmaceutical products from mushrooms, the polysaccharide extracts from mushrooms, they're from you know, both the mycelium and the fruiting body. So, yes, if you're looking for the polysaccharides, you're looking for the proteoglycans, it doesn't matter what the part is. But if you're looking at the secondary metabolites, then they do vary from, to some extent, between the different parts of the mushroom. Because in many cases, 
you know, these secondary metabolites are produced by the mushrooms for their antimicrobial properties. So they are there to help the mushroom to compete with other microbial species, with bacteria, with other fungal species, with nematodes, you know, with you know, multicellular small microorganisms. Because where they're growing, in the soil or in the rotting tree stump or wherever it is, they're competing for resources with millions of other microorganisms, not only competing with resources, but trying to stop themsel themselves being eaten by other microbes yeah. who fancy them, fancy them for lunch. So in order to compete and stop themselves being uh, at other microbes' lunch, they have evolved this ability to produce a wide variety of secondary metabolites. So one of the most common secondary metabolites produced by mushrooms is lovastatin. Right. So, you know, I'm sure your uh, yeah. listeners are aware that lovastatin is prescription anti-cholesterol drug. What they're probably not aware of is that it was first isolated from two species of fungi. Right. So the reason that the fung these fungal species and other uh, fungal species, other mushrooms, are producing lovastatin is because it is a strong antifungal agent. So if you read the paper oh. written by the London-based group that isolated it, they don't talk about its role in relation to HMG-CoA HMG reductase and cholesterol metabolism. They talk about its role in relation to its antifungal properties. That's interesting. So because they're producing these compounds to, for their antimicrobial properties, they are typically produced in higher concentration by the mycelium because that's the part of the mushroom which is growing in the soil or growing in the, in the tree. Mm -hmm. So if you look at levels of lovastatin production between different parts of reishi, the production in the mycelium is over 10 times higher than in the fruiting body. So what other, what other secondary metabolites do we need to be interested in, or you know, uh, have been elucidated at least? Well, if we think about reishi, uh, to continue that, um, go back to, uh, to that point, because yeah. we were talking about the terpenes or the triterpenoid components, and those are found largely in the fruiting body because those are bitter components which are, you know, in, which are inhibitory or uh, inhibitory, or they, they help to stop the reishi being eaten by insects. Right. So they, they disinhibit or they deter the insects from uh, eating the fruiting bodies yeah. because the reason that the reishi is producing the fruiting body is because it wants to spread the spores. So it's every fruiting body, mushroom fruiting body, is producing millions and millions of tiny spores, which are then spread by the wind to colonize you know, new areas. And it doesn't, in the case of reishi, the fruiting body will continue to produce spores for, you know, for several months. And actually, the weight of spores produced by a single reishi fruiting body is equal to the weight of the fruiting body. Wow. So if you have a, a hundred or two, if you have a 200 gram reishi fruiting body, it will produce around 200 grams of spores. That they're an incredible, so, they're an incredible thing to behold, the, the reishi mushroom. When you, 
you look at it, you think it's going to be quite weighty, but you pick it up and they're gorgeously light. It's like balsa wood. Yeah. It's beautiful. So, I mean, they are fantastic. I mean, mushrooms are just gorgeous, full stop. I mean, they, many, many species are just spectacular. And so going back in terms of reishi, because it wants to continue to produce these spores to spread and colonize new areas, it doesn't want to get eaten while it's doing it, if you like. And so it produces all of these triterpenes, not all of which are bitter, but some of which are very bitter. Right. So often when you have a reishi decoction. So levels of triterpenes are higher in the fruiting body hmm. than in the mycelium. But levels of the other antimicrobial secondary metabolites like lovastatin are higher in the mycelium compared to the fruiting body. Yeah. So, so with lovastatin, that was the red yeast rice. Is that correct? Well, lovastatin, the red yeast rice or monascus purpureus yeah. is another fungal species which produces high levels of lovastatin. Ah, okay. And which it, it is standardized. So in China, uh, particularly, you know, there are, it's been used as a food ingredient for hundreds of years. Uh, but now there are companies which, of course, are growing it for therapeutic use. And the concentration of lovastatin increases the longer it's grown for. So depending on the length of the growth cycle, then you can standardize the product that's produced for a particular concentration of lovastatin. Right. What about other secondary metabolites that, are, that, that have medicinal value, though? Uh, so many mushrooms you know, contain, there's a wide variety of secondary metabolites. So, you know, HM, so uh, lovastatin is produced by many mushroom species. Another antifungal agent, which is produced by shiitake, is eritadinine. So eritadinine is produced by shiitake. And interestingly enough, it also has a role in controlling cholesterol levels. Ah. But, by, but by a different enzymatic pathway. Right. I think it's F-adenosyl homocysteine hydrolase that it inhibits. Right. So again, it produce, and again, the reason shiitake produces eritadinine is because it is an antifungal agent. So it's an example of another antifungal agent produced by another mushroom, which uh, also has a role in terms of cholesterol metabolism. Then we have other compounds such as ergothionine, which is produced by particularly oyster mushrooms and by porcini. So these are both, of course, delicious culinary mushrooms. And ergothionine is, a, is an important antioxidant amino acid, which is required by our body and our tissues. And the reason we know it's required by our body is because there's a specific transporter molecule in our cell membranes. Right. So... We have a specific molecule to make sure it gets into our cells, but our body doesn't produce it. We have to derive it from our diet. And the richest sources of ergothionine are mushrooms, particularly oyster mushroom and porcini mushroom. Gotcha. So that's another example of a secondary metabolite, uh, which is then con it's found in high concentrations in, in red blood cells, in bone marrow, in uh, seminal fluid, in the eyes. So all of these areas where we need to make sure we have high levels of antioxidant capacity to protect against oxidative damage, um, ergothionine is an important antioxidant amino acid that uh, is required in those areas, right. which we have to get from our diet, particularly from mushrooms. And what about mushrooms like uh, um, enoki mushrooms? Uh, enoki take uh, produces 
very, there are no um, therapeutic secondary metabolites that have been researched in relation to enoki mushrooms. What's been researched in relation to enoki, enokitake or um, flamulina volutopes are the polysaccharides and also the proteins. So there are small protein molecules from enokitake, which alongside the polysaccharides have also been shown to have immunomodulatory properties. Gotcha. One second. It's not that enokitake doesn't produce secondary metabolites. It does. There's one of them, flamutoxin, which is actually a toxic com uh, compound produced by enokitake. And it's toxic not only for other microbial species, but also for ourselves. And that's ah. the reason why it's produced in relatively you know, very low concentrations. So right. eating an okitake is not a uh, is not uh, dangerous typically, but it is a it is a good reason why all mushrooms should be cooked. Right. You know, I'm often asked I'm often asked about whether to eat mushrooms raw or cook them, and I say no. You should always cook mushrooms because not only does the cooking process help to break down the cellular structure and then release the active compounds, but it also, in many cases, will break down toxic compounds from the mushroom where they're present. One example is enoki, flamulina volutipes. Another one, interestingly enough, is shiitake. Right. There's a, there's a condition called shiitake dermatitis, ah. which, as its name suggests, is a skin rash, yep. which people get from eating lots of shiitake. And it's been reported from many countries around the world, obviously, first of all, from Japan. But now there have been reports from many countries in Europe. And in every case, it, though, it has been from eating lots of raw shiitake mushrooms. So always cook your mushrooms. What I think is really interesting is, you know, as a culture, in the West, we seem to be really restrictive as to what's acceptable, whereas traditional Chinese and Japanese culture has an expansive array of these culinary mushrooms. It seems like we've missed out. Um, I mean, another yeah. one, which I, I lovingly call snot on a log, Tremella fusiformis. I mean, that's just, it's a, it's a gorgeous mushroom. It's a gorgeous mushroom, and it is also a very, I mean, I, I hesitate to use the word delicious culinary mushroom because it has no flavor. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> it's hard to call it delicious, but it is a, a very, uh, it's a highly valued, yeah. val uh, valued culinary mushroom uh, in Far East, in Eastern uh, cookery. You know, particularly because it has no flavor, you can put it in soups, you Any, can put, use yeah. it in dessert. Um, and also it has a wonderful, it's the texture. So it has that lovely kind of crunchy uh, texture to it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, I mean, yeah, mushrooms, you know, it's a fa a fascinating. I mean, so, yeah, Tremella fusiformis um, is a, an interesting mushroom because it is not growing on the log. It may look like it's growing on the log, but it's not. Oh. It's actually growing parasitically on another fungal species. Ah, I did not know so this. It, <laughs> so it, it grows, it travels like a, in a single cellular film yeah. over the surface of the log until it encounters its preferred host. So when it finds the other fungal species growing and you know uh, digesting the wood quite happily, it then penetrates into that other fungal species and uses its... Um, nutrients to produce its fruiting body. 
So it's an example of a mushroom which doesn't produce antimicrobial, antifungal secondary metabolites. Right. Because why would it? I mean, it doesn't want to kill its host. That's really so, interesting. Yeah, they come in all shapes and sizes. They're amazing. There's so many. I mean, there's way too many to cover. We could we could go on and on. I mean, but we haven't spoken about maitake. I, I must say here, um, I was so impressed with your book. I've got quite a few medicinal fungal books and yours shines. Yours and Christopher Hobbs are my favourites. Um, but it's so clear. It's so well set out. You've done, obviously done a lot of work. How long did that um, take to write and to form? <laughs> Uh, I wasn't counting the time. <laughs> <laughs> or I might have stopped. I don't know. Oh, it's got to be a labour of love. Yeah. It, yeah, it took a while. But I mean, I was, you know, I, I really wrote that book almost, um, you know, partially for myself. And already, you know, I think, you know, already, because I asked other practitioners here to re really, you know, because yeah, I wanted to answer the, the questions. I wanted to try to answer the questions in terms of, you know, what was, for any individual patient, what was the best mushroom to give that patient? What was the best form to give the mushroom in? Uh -huh. And what was an appropriate dosage? Right. So as, as practitioners, that's what we want to know. Yeah. And, you know, I really, you know, wanted to you know, go back and really look at all of the evidence and try to come up to what I felt was the, you know, the, the, the best uh, understanding, you know, of what the answers to those questions were in relation to different conditions and different species. Now, do you then, when you're helping your patients, um, do you tend to use medicinal products that are available or you, do you try and teach your patients about the beauty of eating the mushrooms? I, I always... Um, encourage people to eat more mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Um, totally with you. Yeah, that's yeah, so. When I you know, often I give a lot of lectures um, uh, in the UK and further afield, and one thing I often say, look, the main sort of message, take-home message from this lecture, basically, is just to you know eat more mushrooms. Mm -hmm. Because even through culinary, even through dietary consumption of mushrooms, there's very clear evidence that just by eating mushrooms on a regular basis, that in itself will have a positive impact on our overall health and well-being. There have been a number of epidemiological studies looking at the correlation between incidence of mushroom or the degree, the, the, the frequency of mushroom consumption and the risk of developing cancer. Right. And showing that people who develop cancer were statistically eating less mushrooms it doesn't mean that everybody who eats mushrooms regularly is not going, never going to develop cancer no. you know or everybody who developed cancer wasn't eating and never ate mushrooms but you know when you when you look at large body, you know, bodies of uh, people statistically there is a strong inverse correlation gotcha. uh, between those two things so we know you know, from that and also from other studies, just looking at changes in immune parameters from dietary mushroom consumption in smaller bodies of participants, that just dietary consumption of mushrooms will have a positive impact on our health, you know, partly because they have an impact through the immune system and receptors on the surface of major categories of immune cells, partly all because of their impact on the gut flora and their prebiotic effect. So yes, I always encourage people to, uh, to eat more mushrooms. But sometimes our health can, and, and if we are in a healthy state, 
if we're in a balanced state, then eating more mushrooms will help to maintain that balance, will help to increase our resistance to um, infections, you know, viral conditions, you know, or, or to cancer. So in those cases, yes, just eating more mushrooms if we're healthy. One thing we haven't covered, <laughs> we haven't covered Gryfola again, but one thing we haven't cover, covered is um, ergosterols, the vitamin D. I mean, they've even irradiated slices of, I think they were portobello mushrooms in Perth, um, to something like 50,000 IU. A well, slice it's, it's not, er, it, yeah, they, it's, it's, they convert ergosterol into vitamin D2. Yeah. Which is a name I've forgotten, cholecalciferol. Yeah. So mushrooms contain ergosterol as parts of the cell membrane. And what, uh, but then on exposure to UV light, as you say, they convert that Mm. into vitamin D2. Mm. So, yes, if you are harvesting mushrooms in growing outside, then of course they will have been exposed to vitamin to UV light. Uh, sunlight, but if you're buying mushrooms in the supermarket, then they've quite possibly been grown in the dark. So in that case, it's always advisable before you cook them to expose them on your windowsill to in UV light for around half an hour. And yes, in commercially, when they're developing vegan D vitamin D supplements, they will pulse them with vitamin with UV light to a much higher concentration. But even exposing them to sunlight on the windowsill for half an hour will lead to an appreciable increase in vitamin D concentration. Ideally, if you expose them with the cap down, so the gills ah, are up, right? Because that increases that increases the surface area. Okay, thank you very much for that. Good tip. <laughs> we must cover Gryphola frondosa. We must cover maitake. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the beauty of Gryfola, any secondary metabolites it might have, and certainly its major action. Gryfola frondosa, um, the research in relation to Gryfola hasn't really looked in detail at specific secondary metabolites. It's been focused on extracts. However, when you look at what was, was actually used in the clinical studies, in every case, it was a combination of a low, a low dose of extract with a high concentration of whole mushroom. Powder. Right. So whether it was studies for cancer or studies for PCOS or studies for blood sugar control, in all of those cases, they were using, I mean, if you look at the cancer studies, they were looking at a dosage from 35 to 150 milligrams a day of a highly purified extract with four to six grams a day of dried mushroom powder. Gotcha. So a lot of mushroom powder being consumed with a small amount of extract. So it's incorrect to say that the therapeutic benefits of mushroom and the clinical studies have really looked at extract. They've used, uh, they've looked at the fruiting body supplemented with a small amount of extract. Well, I hope we all embrace, you know, the culinary mushrooms that you've, you've enlightened us with. But given that we'll be seeing patients in our clinics, what really do we need to be concentrating on to choose a quality product? Yes, it is. Uh, there, are, there are different forms of the, uh, of the mushroom which are present in products. And those are, you know, you can just have fruiting body powder 
or mm. powers of truth to embody, which, yes, is not, you know, is not without its benefit, uh, as we've said, but which is particularly, you know, is, is mainly appropriate for culinary mushrooms because we can digest those. It's not so appropriate for things like reishi or chaga, which are you know, hard, woody mushrooms, or harder, you know, more woody mushrooms, which are not so digestible. Gotcha. Uh, so that's generally, and it's also, yeah, so that's, that's one particular form. Another form are the extracted products, which are uh, widely available also, and the extracts fall into two categories hot water extracts, which are rich in polysaccharides, immune modulation, or um, alcohol extracts, which will have higher levels of terpenes, more anti-inflammatory activity in particular, and dual extracts, which combine the two. And then you'll have products which are mycelial biomass products, which are often also referred to as full-spectrum products, which are um, the... They contain. It's like they, what they what they're made of. It's like, like a fermented grain, typically brown rice, but sometimes uh, sorghum, or oats, or corn. And what the what is the, the the production there is that the grain is inoculated with the mushroom mycelium, which grows and colonizes the substrate, and then after the mushroom has consumed the vast majority of the substrate, the uh, whole mycelial biomass, so the residual substrate together with the mushroom mycelium, and importantly, the secondary metabolites which have been secreted by the mycelium into the substrate, that is all harvested. And that's then used to produce the product. So those types of products will typically have higher levels of the antimicrobial secondary metabolites, but lower levels of the polysaccharide, the immune-modulating polysaccharides or terpenoid uh, compounds, which are found more in the fruiting body or um, produced in high concentrations through extract. You raise an interesting point there about this bi-directional secretion, if you like, or, or use of the substrate and that the, the secondary metabolites may indeed be secreted into that substrate. So having some substrate along with the mushroom is not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's like a fermented gotcha. it's a fermented product, which you know, we're all we're now increasingly aware of the health benefits of fermented foodstuffs you know, also, particularly from the sort of point of view of uh, gut flora. But also they do these, these compounds that are produced by the mushrooms in many cases are produced, as we were saying, because they are antimicrobial. So, as I mentioned, in reishi, the level of lobostatin produced by the mycelium is over 10 times, it's yeah. more like 15 times the concentration of the fruiting body. Yeah. So where, you're, where the active, where the antimicrobial components are an important active uh, part of the mushroom, an important part of the mushroom's overall therapeutic activity, then yes, they will be found in higher concentration, typically in the mice, in, a, in a mycelial biomass product. There's so much to learn, Martin. I would love to have you back on the show to talk maybe about specific entities. We, we never delved really into the, the prebiotic effects of mushrooms, which I'd love to cover later, if we could. Could we uh, invite you back onto FX Medicine at a later stage? Uh, Yes, we could certainly do that. And thank you so much for teaching us just a gleaning a little bit of your expansive experience from this 
from using um, medicinal mushrooms in your history as a practitioner. I, I really can't thank you enough. It's been so great to speak to you. I've been wanting to, to have you on the show for quite some time. Um, so thank you very, very much for taking us through at least the first chapter of what we'll speak about <laughs> in, in subsequent uh, podcasts. Thanks very much for joining us today. Okay, you're very welcome. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.